Welcome to the AMR Studio, a podcast dedicated to the multidisciplinary research on antimicrobial resistance, hosted by the Uppsala Antibiotic Center. Hi, I am Eva Garmendia. And I'm Jenny Jagman. Hi, everyone, and welcome to this month's episode of the AMR Studios. So this month, Eva got a chance to interview Dr. Luisa Desordi from the Sorbonne University on the 8th of June. And it's a really great interview, so I hope you enjoy it as much as I do. Hey everyone, I am very pleased today to have Luisa Desordi on the podcast with us. She was part of the USC seminar series a little while back, and today we are going to learn a little bit more about her path and her insights and her motivations to do the work that she's doing. Luisa, uh, could you please introduce yourself to our audience? Absolutely. First of all, thank you, Eva, for this invitation. It's great to be uh, here today, so I'm um, Lisa Desordi, I'm um, assistant professor at Sorbonne University in Paris, and uh, I do work on bacteriophages. So we met with Eva because bacteriophages are strictly related to antimicrobial resistance, while they're not actually antibiotics, uh, and that's why we create the connection. So bacteriophages are these uh, viruses of bacteria, and there's so many different aspects that maybe we can talk about a bit more later, um, they're interested about them, first of all, because they kill bacteria, and that's what they do. They're viruses. Like any virus, they kill their host. But we're also uh, interested in what they do in the microbiota, in the intestines of humans. And um, how did I start working with bacteriophages? This is a very good question, because I, I didn't work with bacteriophages before, but I was always interested in how microbes actually interact with each other and interact with the host that they colonize. And it all started very far. And uh, I started working with bacteria and interaction with plants, which has nothing to do with what I do anymore. It's more related to the clinics. But in the end, as a microbiologist, which I am, the relationship with microbes and the host don't change that much. All right. So you are hardcore, I would say, biologists, microbiologists that really likes to understand the relationship and the ecology, we can say, between the different species and how they might be on balance or the balance might be thrown out of, out of uh, state. Um, how did you end up going into more AMR-focused research? When I started working with um, antimicrobial resistance and the problematics of of finding alternative, actually alternative therapies to bacteria. I didn't start with phages, actually. When I did my very first postdoc at UCL in London, I was working on photodynamic therapy. And that's where I started um, getting interested in what else can we use apart from antibiotics, which are great. I still believe they're great in killing bacteria, but what are the alternatives that we can explore? And photodynamic therapy is a therapy based on the use of little molecules. They are excited by light and produce a reactive oxygen species. These are toxic to bacteria and the eukaryotic cells as well. There's different molecules that can be, that can be used. But that's where I get started thinking at different methods and I start thinking about phages because some other people in the lab worked on phages, but the lab wasn't uh, really working on therapeutic phages. But that time I was looking for another postdoc and I ended up in Paris where I still am doing a postdoc at the Institut Pasteur. And uh, I actually fell in love with bacteriophages and their, their ability to kill bacteria. They're these little viruses. They have such potential in specifically target bacteria. 
during your talk at the seminar, you were presenting to us some incredible numbers about bacteriophages and compared to bacteria and compared to us. Can you relate those numbers for us now? So yeah, this, it's, uh, these are numbers I can't even think about. So the, the estimation is there's 10 to the 31 viral particles on planet Earth. Now, this number as it is doesn't mean anything. So there's different ways. So if we imagine that every virus had the size of a ladybug, the entire Earth will be covered in viruses for several meters. That's, that's the, something that we can start related, uh, relate to. And so this enormous number, of course, there's different estimations and in the oceans, in different environments, make us understand that there's, there's big resources out there in trying to find uh, new phages. We know so little of them. What do you think are the limitations to understand better or to know more about the relationship between bacteria and bacteriophages? Well, the, the big obstacle is that we might know that phages are there. And now do we know that's because nowadays we sequence environments and we get viral sequence and we know what they are. What we do not know is which host they infect. So if I have to find uh, a bacteriophages for E. coli, for example, for Pseudomonas aeruginosa, I need to specifically find those that infect them. However, the rest, we wouldn't know who they infect. If we, if we don't know the host, we cannot cultivate them. If we cannot cultivate them, we cannot study them. And that's true for any environment. And because I'm working on gut microbiota, that's specifically true for, for this environment where uh, yes, we know they're there, we have sequences, but the biology of it is, is missing. Mm -hmm. Very interesting. So I guess it's like you have to be able to cultivate the host, and that's still another barrier because we know a lot of microbes are not even able to be cultivated in the lab. So it, there is like two two-way barrier. First, you have to be able to cultivate the host, and then you need to kind of know which host it is in order to recover those bacteriophages That's from the exactly environment. That's exactly how you said it. There's these two big barriers. Of course, from a clinical point of view, that because we're very anthropocentric, okay, we have the bugs that bother us. And so those, we cultivate them because even microbiology has a strong bias towards those microbes that, that, that are um, infectious. Mm -hmm. And by cultivating them, we're able to isolate phages. When did the research on bacteriophages start? So research on bacteriophages is a little bit more than 100 years old. Mm -hmm. Actually, in, in, in 2017, at the Institut Pasteur, where I was at that time, we, we did a big celebration of the 100 years of phages. That it was the same thing as, say, the 100 years of phage therapy, because that was the very first application of phages. So Felix Dorel at the, the Institut Pasteur was the first one that made use of these viruses for a therapeutic purpose. He actually, was actually the person that named them bacteriophages, so bacterial eaters. Mm -hmm. So if my calculations are correct, then bacteriophages were used to treat bacterial infections before we discovered that penicillin was doing what it was doing to bacteria, right? 
Absolutely. That's, that was the very first expansion of antibacterial treatment. Mm-hmm. It was quite revolutionary because at that time, like for, for the younger listeners, there was no cure for bacterial infections. And several phages were isolated for every bacteria from Vibrio cholerae, Shigella, uh, most pathogens that were causing problems at the time. But as you said, and another most powerful tool came out, which is antibiotic discovery of penicillin and all the stories that everyone knows afterwards. And it was so much easier cheaper and straightforward to use that after an expansion of phage therapy, a short but big expansion of phage therapy, it cut the use of phages in the interest of antibiotics. Mm-hmm. Possibly a lot of people listening to us right now didn't know that bacteriophages actually came before antibiotics, which is a very... Bacteriophages were eliminated by antibiotics. <laughs> Some competition out there. Let's just leave behind the history of bacteriophages and let's focus now on learning a little bit more about your projects using bacteriophages. What are you working with right now and where do you hope to go with it? So I'm based at the in Centre de Recherche Saint-Antoine, the Saint-Antoine Research Center in Paris. Um, I am a microbiologist, but the research center is very associated to the clinics, the Saint-Antoine the Hospital in Paris. So uh, we're using, we're studying phages related to the gut microbiota. The heads of our unit are gastroenterologists, Philip Seksik and Harry Sokol, that did a lot of work on microbiota, the bacterial part of the microbiota, especially in a disease which is inflammatory bowel disease that includes uh, two main diseases, Crohn's disease and ulcerative colitis that are chronic conditions that affects our patients. I've been here just for uh, three years now, and I found myself in the position where my studies on gut bacteriophages could be associated to the clinics. And now our interest is basically trying to understand the relationship between bacteriophages, bacteria, and the host, which is this amazingly complex environment of the microbiota where the three partners are together. And so the research we are doing now is related to trying to understand our bacteriophages are players in determining the equilibrium of the microbiota. As probably many people know now, uh, the bacteria in our gut are very important for every, uh, our health status. And there are several disorders now that are related to a disequilibrium of this bacterial counterpart. Now, we know also that disequilibrium in viruses can be found in, in different disorders. And we're trying to make the connection of the two especially in the environment of gut inflammation. So if I understand correctly, you are exploring the possibility that uh, these inflammatory conditions might be a result of an imbalance between the bacteriophages and the bacteria in the gut? It's, it's hard to say that they are the result of it. They're multifactorial disease. And there's, there's several factors affecting the, the status of these patients from genetics to dysregulation of the immune system and the microbiota is a part of it. Now, which one came first is the big like, egg and the chicken question. But we know that because there's peaks of inflammation and peaks of imbalance of the microbiota, um, there is a role for bacteria in exacerbating the inflammation. It's not like that we change the microbiota, we would cure a disease. What we want to do is to control the symptoms. That's what is being done now with, the, with drugs. 
Is it also, for example, for Crohn's disease that the infamous fecal transplants are used to try to to restore or to balance the microbiota in in the gut? Yes, yes. There's uh, there are studies even done here at the hospitals uh, on fecal transplant for for Crohn's disease. There have been different results over the years. There's no big study as yet. It's not um, as common as, for example, we see for Crostigioides difficile at the moment. Um, but there's promising results uh, in this case too. And uh, one of the things we're doing, so it's nice that you, that you brought it up because the Saint Antoine Hospital in Paris is the fecal transplant center for Paris. And one of the things we want to do is to, to try to understand the role of phages and can be transferred to, to a, from a microbiota to another. Yes, I asked about that because I remember once on a conference I went to and I went to the bacteriophages session that there were some proposals that perhaps fecal transplants are actually working as good as they are working, not just because you are bringing in the bacteria into the gut, but also you are bringing the whole ecosystem that includes the bacteriophages. And there were some people trying to understand if maybe just putting the bacteriophages will have a similar effect as well, or if it's the whole fecal matter that is important. And I think it's super, super interesting that this balance between these uh, organisms, if we can call phages organisms, is so important for our health. Absolutely. That's the big problem with fecal transplant. We don't know exactly what we're putting in and out, and we don't know actually what's working. So the dream, I guess, for anyone working in this field is to find the magical combination of components that have an effect. Mm -hmm. And it's true that there have been studies showing that the transfer of bacteriophages is as important as the transfer of bacteria. And there's also a little study where they did a filtrate fecal transplant, so they removed the bacterial components to test for resolution of the Crostidioides difficile uh, recurrency uh, and it worked. It was a small pilot study but that is an indication that although we have studied bacteria so much in, in the microbiota and a lot still to know other components are there as well. Mm -hmm. Also if we filtrate the, the fecal materia, yes the viruses are there but also a lot of molecules mm -hmm. and metabolites from the intestine. So I guess the big dream would have like have the perfect combination of things that have an effect for different diseases. Talking about combinations, uh, phages are, as we said previously, incredibly specific. Like a particular bacteriophage is going to infect and affect only a particular species, maybe sometimes even certain strains perhaps. And for using bacteriophages as treatment, a lot of the times what is done is a cocktail of different bacteriophages. Based on your research, how important it is that we have a big mix of different phages to potentially use it for treatment? So uh, combining different phages would increase our chance to target the pathogen that we want to target. And this is related to the fact that different studies have showed that phages, as you said, are different host ranges. And the host range of phages is one of the biggest field of research in this for the clinical application of phages, which wants to test the ability of different phages to infect the largest panel of strains that might be related to a certain infection. The advantage for that and the ultimate goal would be to have a preparation that kill all Pseudomonas aeruginosa strains, all Klebsiella pneumonia strains, etc. The risk with using one phage would be to, to get off target. There is another aim 
to use a cocktail that would be trying to prevent what is now is a problem for antibiotics, which is resistance. And because we know that the mechanisms of infection for bacteriophages are so different, using a cocktail of bacteriophages would increase the chance to go around the possible resistant mechanism, meaning that if the bacterium becomes resistant to one of the phages, there would be a panel of others that would be still able to infect it. Mm -hmm. I understand. So it's a little bit like the idea of also making combinations of antibiotics to prevent this development of resistance. How common is that bacteria get resistance to a particular bacteriophage? It is very common. And since the beginning, when people started looking at lysis kinetics of bacteriophages, the resistance of bacteria became evident. And it's thanks to also mechanisms of resistance to phages that we have a lot of tools in molecular biology. For example, restriction modification enzymes, uh, CRISPR-Cas systems, now it's world famous. Well, it all comes from uh, bacterial resistance to bacteriophages. If we are very much aware of that, it's also true that bacteriophages have different mechanisms to um, go over this bacterial resistance. And so there is anti-CRISPR mechanism or anti-restriction mechanisms. It's one of the advantages and disadvantages of this type of viruses in the clinics is that they evolve. And they've been doing that for, for billions of years. Uh, and that's the reason why there's still 10 to the 31 out there. <laughs> I also remember from your talk that you were talking about how important these phages are for the evolution of the whole ecosystem of bacteria and how often or how quick they are actually killing bacteria and the bacteria then are evolving due to this relationship. How does that apply to the relationship of the bacteria and the phages in our guts? Oh, this is a, a good question. Is the question I will try to answer because differently from other studies, most of the information we have about this coevolution, coexistence of phages of bacteria doesn't come from humans, for once. It comes from the environment, comes from oceans and soil. And the gut seems to be another perfect environment for it to happen. It's a, it's a compact environment, very densely populated. And the information we have from the gut is based on the data we can get with metagenomics, as I was telling you before. But thanks to this data, we know that bacteria resistant mechanisms are there, phage counter resistant mechanisms are there. What we're trying to do is to pull out this information and try to understand these mechanisms uh, in the lab. What are your main findings so far? So we start looking at resistant mechanisms in the gut environment using bacteria and bacteriophages in animal models, thinking that resistance will be our main driver of phage bacteria coevolution in the gut. And we were pretty disappointed to find that resistance was very, very difficult to find. Uh, so we start to develop different other hypotheses on how the second system live together. And one of the main points that we, that we found was that, for example, as opposed to what we study in a Petri dish, or in vitro in the lab, in the gut there is a very complex structural environment that determines the interaction between the two. And that comes to the limitation we have when we study this kind of mechanisms in the lab. We cannot re always reproduce 
all the biotic, abiotic factors that might affect the interaction in vivo. So for example, we found the, the mucus layer that is covering the epithelial cells in the gut have dynamics of interaction that are not the same in the lumen, for example, of the colon. We also find that bacteria and bacteriophages co-evolve a different, very large community of microorganisms. That is not what we simply can study with one bacterium, one bacteriophage in the lab. So we're still using simple models, but try to combine the information together to try to get closer and closer to the big picture of the complexity of the gut. Mm, super interesting, really, really good work. How do you see the future of phage therapy and phage research as a viable treatment for infections? So as we discussed, phage therapy was abandoned. And only recently, say in the last 20 years, it's been uh, retaken into consideration for this potential to treat bacterial infections. There was a lot to catch up. And that's the work that's been now from researchers uh, and the clinicians and is now expanding towards uh, more and more use of phage therapy in the, in the clinics, although it's not uh, yet approved from the, from the medical agency. But we're starting collecting data that are very encouraging, and now it would be the time to push for larger clinical trials, uh, a bigger investment from researchers, from clinicians, from governmental institutions, and that's the dream, the private sector that might have less interest in pushing for this kind of treatment, but I'm positive that with positive results coming, it, it might erase interest from, from companies. You kind of answer the next questions that I have for you, because I was going to ask you, what do you think is missing in your area of work or if you have any wish list for the future? And I think you kind of, kind of answered Covered that. it. <laughs> <laughs> it's nice. Is, is there anything else that you think it's needed or you would be happy to see uh, moving forward? Yes, it's, it's, it's about this coordination. Like uh, As academics, we, we do our job into trying to characterize morphages, but then it's, it's the coordination with the medical sector, the pharmacists that will make this happen, actually. There's another limitation that is uh, we need to know more of these biology of phages. As we said, the 10 to the 31 out there, and we studied so much, a few model phages. That was great because we learned a lot, but there's still a lot to, to find and a lot to, to collect. So the, the key would be to have an investment that makes possible collections of bacteriophages for therapeutic use. There are some in the world, but a big help would be to have phages ready for the clinics and prepared according to a good manufacturing practice that would be ready for the clinics. So. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that sounds like a very essential step in order to, to also have like clinical trials and get to some somehow a place where we can start thinking seriously to use this as a treatment. Absolutely. I can tell my experience in France, this is done because there's a company involved and is providing phages for phage therapy for the clinics because it's the only partner that invests in having phages for therapeutic use. Because of course, in the lab, we can have phages, we can purify them, make them endotoxin-free. They're not something that, that we can use in the clinics. Like we, That's what I meant where uh, we need companies that invest in this, in this sector. Mm-hmm. Uh, before we wrap up the interview, we always like to ask our guests 
what do you find that is most misunderstood about your field? And it could be, you know, when you talk to other researchers with your collaborators, it could be when you try to explain your science to your friends or family, but something that kind of strikes to you as really coming across the wrong way for people around you. Okay, I start with the different levels of, of misunderstanding, which are not the fault of the audience, it's the fault of the, the communication that's been done so far. Well, the first one is with the lay people. And the, the message I'll try to send is, not all viruses are bad. And this is particularly difficult at this time of pandemics. But bacteriophages are now very well known. And when we start talking about treating bacteria with viruses, I understand that uh, it can be confusing to most people. And this is, this is a problem that must be addressed, especially with potential patients, because there, there is some skepticism. Um, and that the other thing that goes in parallel is, well, this is an alternative medicine, alternative therapy. No, it's a, it's a therapy that has been used and is, is still used quite widely, for example, in the eastern countries of Europe. But sometimes when we talk about something that is not approved yet, it's necessarily something unknown and scary. I understand that a bit obscure and alternative doesn't really mean that it doesn't work or that uh, we have not proven that it might work. So I understand that. What other levels of misunderstanding do you have? Did you have any issues at, when trying to set up collaborations or finding some people to work with? What I found is that there is a sort of uh, strange competition between people that are working on different alternatives to antibiotics. So the fact that we're working on phages or there's people working on antimicrobial peptides, uh, etc., etc., doesn't mean that we have to be defending our field and stay close to what we believe. I think a combinational therapy will be key to, to, to bring forward a, a concrete, solid antimicrobial treatment even with antibiotics. Yeah, definitely. I think if we want to get to a sustainable place where we are still able to treat infections, the maybe not so dangerous one, but also the dangerous one, we have to find a way where we can pull all the resources that we have together and try to find, you know, for one side, maybe strengthening the immune system, other side, how do you treat uh, with something that is not antibiotic, or how do you mix different antibiotics to reduce the selection of resistance or the potential effect of the antibiotics themselves. All this is very promising and uh, I am very motivated to kind of still try to find people around that they can talk to each other and not to promote this competition as you're saying but mostly seeing that we're all working we're all on the same boat and we can learn from each other and potentially find synergies as well in our in our work it's beautiful absolutely yeah i think we're about to wrap up the interview but before we do i would like to open the stage for you if you want to tell anything to our audience anything that you want them to know new research is about to happen something that they should keep an eye on let us know we know that the microbiota the gut microbiota is good for us and over the past years, even the, the general public, the adverts out there have been telling us that we have to take care of it. Uh, and I strongly believe that. But while most probiotics, most information come from the bacterial components, uh, I'd like to point out the microbiota is 
far more complex than only a group of bacteria. And without the other members of the microbiota, fungi, viruses, protists, the host is the whole system that works together, we might not have the same effects. Uh, and so that's why I believe that it's very important to study the complexity and the, the whole ecosystem, including metabolites, to really understand what's good for us, what's, what keep a balance in our microbiota, and most of all, how can we possibly revert a microbiota that is in an unbalanced state. And that goes beyond bacteria, beyond only the action of a few microbes, I believe. Definitely. Beautiful, beautiful way to, to finish there. Think about that your biota is not just made of bacteria, but there is so many other things. And yourself as a vessel of that rich, rich environment also plays a role in how everything works. And we need to take care of it. Exactly. <laughs> we, should, we should pet it, definitely. <laughs> we can finish with, with a, a mummy uh, advice. Eat your fruit and veg. <laughs> And everything will be fine. <laughs> nice. One apple a day keeps the doctor away. Isn't that what exactly. they were saying? <laughs> Perfect. Thank you so much, Luisa, for being with us. It was lovely to hear your story, hear your science and hear your insights. And I wish you the best on your research. And I do hope that on the years to come, we're going to see a rise on the use of uh, phages as a potential treatment. Again, thank you. And I hope to have you back sometime soon. Yeah, thank you, Eva. Thanks, everyone. And see you. Welcome back, everyone. That was a great, great interview. I had a lot of fun talking to Luisa. Jenny, what did you... So, so Jenny, what do you think about this conversation? I really enjoyed it. And for one thing, I did not know that phage therapy was 100 years old. So I felt a little bit targeted there when you guys were talking about it. I feel like I should have known that phage therapy came before antibiotic treatment. But it's really interesting that it hasn't really I and mean, people tend to see phage therapy as this kind of alternative thing in eastern europe people do but it's it has a more established past and a real history behind it so i thought that was really interesting i really loved dr disordi's work it's a really complicated approach but i really enjoy it i mean it's much more i don't know if realistic is the right term but it's a much more real image of what it is you know the microbiota is a very complex complicated thing that's crucial We're learning more and more about how important it is when thinking about treatment, when thinking about uh, general health and whatnot. But we tend not to think about it as much as, oh, well, there are some good bacteria and that's clearly not enough. And in this case, I think it was really interesting to see her approach to it and how she approaches treatment of patients and whatnot. It's, it's a great approach. It's novel and interesting. I was happily surprised, you know, that there's a lot of talk when it comes to phage therapy, you know, as using phages mm -hmm. for treatment of bacteria. And I think an essential step before using the phages as a therapy is to understand really how the ecology and the relationships of the bacteria with these phages, and in particular, you know, within the host, which is where ultimately we want to use them, right? Yeah. That she's putting an effort to really get this science understood and see how the relationships play a role either in the development of potential diseases and mm -hmm. hence understanding how they could play a role in the cure of some diseases as well. Yeah, absolutely. And I thought it was really interesting this, that you guys talked about the fecal transplants and like the role that bacteriophages might play in fecal transplants as we see them today. Because it's really something I never thought about. Mm -hmm. But it's true. I mean, I've heard people use terms like the human virome. Mm -hmm. when talking about parts of the human microbiome, that 
it's a really underestimated, really not understood, we're not studying it enough, and undervalued. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it also kind of ties in with something that uh, Dr. Disordi said at the end about all not, not all viruses are bad. I mean, every virus is bad for some host, for its host, because they kill host cells. But that can be beneficial for people around it. They're, they're part of an ecosystem. Mm-hmm. It's all in a balance. And I mean, it's, it's a really, it kind of helped me think a bit more bigger picture when it comes to microbiome studies, which I think is helpful mm-hmm. for me personally. I think there's still a lot of work to do. I personally think there is a lot we don't really know about all these relationships, yeah. as she said, between, you know, the metabolomics within the gut and this biome and the microbiome, like all these big components that work together and have been evolving together for a really long time as well. Yeah. And uh, to be honest, I actually, I've always been a little bit pessimistic about phage therapies. Louise actually got me a little bit more optimistic now about this, which is interesting for a personal note. My sister's been asking me about phage therapy for like investing money <laughs> in, in companies that work with phage. And I've been trying to talk her out of it for months. I, I'm a little bit more optimistic now. But also, there was recently a large conference uh, between the American Society for Microbiology and the European Society for Microbiology. We did a massive online conference that had really long days. But one of the sessions was about phage therapy, phage therapy 2.0, I think it was. If somebody listening to this that still has access to the conference talks wants to hear more. And it was uh, some representatives from companies working with phage talking about, among other things, random control trials that had failed. So I got more pessimistic then, and now I'm balancing it out by being more optimistic after hearing this this uh, talk. So it's been an interesting month for me with phage. <laughs> I think two main keys is how are these randomized controlled trials performed? Because all the yeah. basis of these trials are based on other kind of therapeutical drugs and not something as a somewhat in the middle alive organism used as a, as a therapy, but also that very precise, good manufacturing processes should be in place in order to produce these phages that can be used on the clinics. Like she was mentioning that in yeah. France, it's actually working because there's this one company that is providing all these phages for these trials. So I think her cry or shout out for like more investment from the private companies it's really based on this we need to produce these phages in a secure way in a way that we can control and then use them for these clinical trials so they're very intertwined yeah i really hadn't thought much about that i mean i knew that it was more complicated than just lab but i kind of didn't cross my mind that there might not be somebody willing to produce that Mm -hmm. even if it theoretically works even if you have everything set up if you don't have anyone to go to to make the phage when you need it for Mm. clinical use then you have another problem that's just on top of everything else. But yeah, it was a really interesting talk and I'm really glad I got to hear it. Yeah, I'm very happy that we were able to bring this topic up here and bring it closer to our audience and hopefully everyone learn a little bit of something, a little bit of a... Even if it's just that if the whole world is covered by phages that are as big as a ladybug, there will be a meters tall coverage of the earth, which is kind of cool to kind of put it in perspective. Yeah, definitely. And with that, uh, we are going to move to the news, which we have a bunch of things that we want to talk about today, right, Jenny? It's summer, so we're just kind of cramming a bunch of stuff in there. (laughs) Right. Okay, see you all on the news. Welcome to the news for this month. Like Ava said, we have a lot to cover, so we're going to dive right into an article that we want to talk about today. 
It's an open access article, so feel free to look up more information. We're just going to kind of cover it briefly. It's called Destination Shapes Antibiotic Resistance Gene Acquisitions, Abundance Increases, and Diversity Changes in Dutch Travelers. And it was published on June 7th, 2021 in the journal Genome Medicine. So Ava, that's a pretty pretty covering title there, but do you want to tell us a little bit about what this study was about? Yeah, I think that the title, as you say, is pretty descriptive. And I really like especially that they put the tagline of in Dutch travelers because it's a cohort study done in people from the Netherlands that travel to different parts of the world. Travels that would last in between one week and three months. And in particular to places in the world where we know the prevalence of AMR genes is somewhat more than other parts of the world, like it could be the Netherlands. Netherlands has a really low index of AMR prevalence. And these were people that traveled to places like Southeastern Asia, South Asia, North Africa, and Eastern Africa. And what they wanted to have is enough sampling, enough different places to try to get data and conclusions from that data, but not too many places that you cannot kind of pull the results and get some statistical significant results. So what they did basically is recruit these people that were going to travel and ask them to provide a sample of stool of feces before going into the travels, making sure that they had not taken any antibiotics three months prior, because this would actually alter the microbiota in their guts, and then also give a fecal sample right after they come back to the Netherlands after their travels, as I said, between one week and three months. And then with these stool samples, they did a series of studies looking into what is the prevalence of new AMR genes, markers that were not present in the sample before the travel, but they were present after the travel. And they also did something super cool, which was not just like taking the samples and reading them and see which words, which genes do we have in those samples that were not there before, but were there after. But they also did something that is called functional metagenomics, which means that they take these words, these genes that they found in the samples, and they put them into vectors and they test their potential for antibiotic resistance phenotype. That means it's actually working as an antibiotic resistant gene in the lab back. So it's basically a double proof that, you know, whatever we're reading in those genes is actually doing what we expect it to do, which is give antibiotic resistant properties to the bacteria that is harboring them, right? So what they found is that, yes, when the people travel to these places of the world where there is an increased abundance of AMR genes and they come back home, they are hosting, they have these genes in their gut microbiome. They are carrying them from the place that they visited back to the place where they live, which is big evidence that there is transfer and there is movement of these AMR genes from different places due to the globetrotters, as they call it, uh, movement, which is people now travel much, much more than they used to travel before, right? Although last year is an exception. In general, there is an increase in this global movement of people, either for holidays, because people move and live in other countries and come back to visit family, or even for religion reasons as well. From the whole cohort of people that included in the study, they decided to go in the end with 190 samples before travel, 190 samples after travel to do all the experiments that they did. And apart from finding that overall there was an increase in genes that were coming back and those genes would give resistance to all the antibiotics that they tested, 15 antibiotics except for one of them that was meropenem. 
So there was a big diversity into this resistome acquired through travel. And also what they found is that there was a bias towards type of mechanisms, a type of resistance when it comes to this increased abundance. So they found that there was a bias towards efflux-related AMR mechanisms, inactivation-related AMR mechanisms, and target-replacing AMR mechanisms, as opposed to many of the other mechanisms that might be existing for AMR-resistant uh, phenotypes. And one really, really cool thing that I think they found by doing this functional metagenomics, as we were explaining, which is taking the species, putting them into vectors, and testing them in the lab if they give resistance, is that they found more genes that they are already on the database. So they found some pieces of this DNA from these metagenomics in the travelers that came back to the Netherlands. They found that some would give antibiotic resistance and they could find them on the databases because it was already registered or identified as a resistant gene. But they also found a bunch of genes that they could not find anything matching in databases or anything that has been already reported as an AMR gene or mechanism. So I think that also tells us that there might be many more things, many more genes and many more perhaps new mechanisms or resistance that we don't really know about nowadays. Yeah. It was a really interesting study, I think, and especially, I mean, it's kind of, it's the kind of thing like we suspected it before. We've always mm -hmm. suspected that travel and people, especially, I mean, your microbiome is very affected by your environment and you're definitely, uh, what you eat, what you drink, everything like that can change your microbiome more to where you are than anything else. So it maybe wasn't unexpected, but I thought it was a very nicely done study that kind of covered everything and looked at, you know, pairwise samples and lots of them and from different places. And well, they did see a little bit of a difference in the places too. I think it was Northern Africa where they saw a little bit lower less of an increase in abundance, but there was still an increase. And it, I found it a bit interesting that it also seemed to be like, correct me if I'm wrong here, but people who had traveled, their like microbiomes were more similar when they came back. Mm -hmm. There was like less diversity between it, regardless of where they came from or where they had gone. Yeah. So there was an indication that there was a more similar microbiome from people that traveled to similar places. Let's say... Mm -hmm three, four, five people that are not related to each other, they have a different microbiota because they are different people before they go to travel, then they travel to this specific place, let's say Southeastern Asia. And then when they come back, their microbiomes are more similar to each other than what they were before they went on to travel. Yeah. Which means that, yeah, we are changing our microbiomes depending on the environments we're living mm -hmm. in. And then when you go and you live in a particular place for you know one to three months, actually you're changing your microbiome. And they also tested to see if it was similar to the microbiomes of the local people on the places they travel. And they also found a correlation. So that means, yeah, yeah. you're going to these places and you are kind of picking up the microbiome or the different species that are prevalent in those places. I think this is a very important study that highlights how risky in a way it is to travel around you know not to yeah. pinpoint different places but that we have to know and be conscious that there is a risk because of course if you are a healthy individual and you go to these places and you pick up bacteria that has a resistant gene there is not really an issue in that moment because you are healthy it's just something that you're carrying mm -hmm. but the problem will come down the line if you actually acquire an infection and it's caused by one of these bacteria 
or you are in contact with people that might have a depressed immune system, they might be critically ill and they might get this bacteria and get infected by them, then they're going to be much more difficult to treat than a normal non-resistant infection. Yeah, because it's interesting to like remind people with this kind of study that these are not people that were sick, they didn't know they were carrying anything, there was no sign that mm-hmm. anything had changed. Mm-hmm. I mean, from what we can tell, there was no sign of anything like that. There were a few people that did get antibiotic treatments while they were away, but not many. And I think that's important to think about, like, you might feel exactly the same. Mm-hmm. But something has changed. And it would be interesting to also see, I mean, I think your microbiome would change even going to places that maybe don't have a higher prevalence of antibiotic resistance genes, but it would just be maybe different mm-hmm. antibiotic resistance yeah. genes. I mean, they bring that up like there are certain from different certain places, more of one gene than the other and whatnot. And it was pretty interesting because some of those are very common. I think they mentioned that it stuck out to me because I've worked with it, the TET-A gene mm-hmm. and the CAT uh, gene, the chlorophenicol resistance it just stuck out to me of like, oh, those are pretty common things, but it's interesting that they seem to be more common in one place than the other, and they were spreading more from one group. It was it was uh, very well done, for, in my opinion, considering like just it's proof of what we kind of suspected, and it's there. But it would be interesting to see a little bit more just like the, this geographical region's general resistome prevalences mm-hmm. and whatnot. And I mean, of course, that's oversimplifying it. And of course, it also highlights the need for you know, interventions in those yeah. places that have higher prevalence to reduce the prevalence of these genes and also reduce the risk of bringing that back to other parts of the world where mm-hmm. it's not endemic, but then you are kind of like moving it from here and there. Yeah, they can still come here easily. Yeah, the article is open access. So if you are interested to reading all the statistics and all the different experiments that they did, which is pretty extensive, I recommend that you check it out in the link in the show notes. But also it's been extensively covered by Popular News because this is an important topic. So we're also leaving you a Popular News article that we think it's uh, succinct and to the point and explains the main findings of this study. So then we should move on to a few other things we wanted to mention. Mm-hmm. And uh, there's another article we kind of want to just throw out there and let you cut, read yourself. It's a viewpoint article. Mm-hmm. It's called Resetting the Agenda for Antibiotic Resistance Through a Health Systems Perspective. It's an open access viewpoint article in Lancet Global Health. It's in the July 2021 volume. So we're seeing it a little bit early online. So we're not going to go through the details on this, but it's basically a well-written article about looking at antibiotic resistance. It's basically kind of a reminder to renew how we think about antibiotic resistance when we're talking about it and trying to present it and, you know, advocating for change in the field in the path of the COVID-19 pandemic. So mm-hmm. basically what the, one of the things they mentioned is, you know, yeah, we should call it a silent pandemic. Especially in one of the senses because, you know, people are thinking about pandemics. This is on top of people's minds. One of the things they mentioned is that we should take care of what term we use when mm-hmm. talking about this. And this is something that we thought about personally when we were setting up for the podcast was what do we call the podcast? Do we say AMR, antimicrobial resistance, or ABR, antibiotic resistance? And uh, they talk a little bit about that and, you know, how we should look at the problem from a health systems perspective and everything like that. It's, it's a well-written article, and it's from our, our friends at React. Mm-hmm. I'd recommend it. It's a good read, and it's a good thing to think about now when things are maybe starting to get going again after the pandemic. Mm-hmm. Yes, I think it's a good uh, reminder, so to speak, mm-hmm. that it's important. And I think it comes in good timing as well, because as you might know, we have mentioned it many times here in the past uh, month's episodes that 
recently it took place the Uppsala Health Summit specifically on behavioral change and AMR and there was a lot of conversations and specifically one workshop that I was happy to work with another colleagues into setting up about how do we talk about antimicrobial resistance and how do we make communications for behavioral change work and I think they draw onto some of the of the work and the ideas that were also thrown out in the summit and we also want to mention that the post-conference brief of the Uppsala Health Summit have now been published. So this year, instead of having just one post-conference report, single PDF document to read through, they decided to make it a little bit more concise in the form of separate post-conference policy briefs for each one of the workshops that took place at the summit plus an introduction from the organizers. And I really recommend that you go and check them out if you're interested in the different topics. There's a lot of different topics, so I'm sure it pleases to many different audiences that are listening to us right now. And we are, of course, leaving the links in the show notes for both this viewpoint perspective article from React and the post-conference policy brief from the Uppsala Health Summit. In other news, AMR has come up more globally lately. So uh, antimicrobial resistance has even come up at the G7 recently, uh, earlier in June. It was mentioned by both the finance ministers and the health ministers, so it was kind of a two-pronged thing, and that's really important and a huge improvement that's not just considered to be a health issue, it's considered to be a financial issue, and I think that's really, the pandemic has kind of woken people up there. But on top of that, that was G7. Uh, In the U.S., we talked before about the Pasteur Act. It was reintroduced recently as well, which is great. But on top of that, it's also been included in something called the Cures Act or the 21st Century Cures Act. Uh, This is Cures Act 2.0 has been introduced now, which actually includes the Pasteur Act as part of it. And this is a pretty big overhaul of, you know, health policy and whatnot. But it's really great to see that the the Pasteur Act was included in there. Uh, Again, we have talked about before. We'll leave some links in the notes, especially from uh, John Rex. He does a great explanation of all of this and emphasizing exactly what you need to think about so it's excellent but it's also to keep in mind this is probably a more successful way for the bill to get passed or for the legislation to pass so this is a really good news on our part and it's has bipartisan support it was introduced in both chambers in the u.s so it's uh looks pretty good if we can put it that way Mm -hmm. Great. And also talking about Dr. John Rex, there was another thing that I wanted to really bring up because I enjoyed it a lot. I don't know if a lot of you know that uh, apart from the newsletter AMR Solutions that John Rex sends irregularly, but quite often and with really, really good content. He also recently, a few months back, started a YouTube channel where he makes videos, either short videos explaining concepts that are important, but also hosting interviews with very interesting people. And on the past 9th of June, he published an interview that he did with Marian McKenna, which is an investigative journalist that has worked extensively with topics of infectious diseases and AMR, ABR in particular. She has published books. She works pretty often with Wired.com. She has worked very closely with the CDC. And I wanted to highlight and shout out this interview because I do believe that a lot of you that are listening to us are interested in how we talk about AMR and how do we write stories that are compelling, that can communicate the urgency and the importance of this topic? And they do a wonderful job on exploring how does Marin works with this? What is her background that has given her an advantage of 
knowing how to take compelling stories and how to use storytelling and translate that to topics of epidemiology and infectious diseases. And it's just very enlightening. And I actually learn a lot. Of course, in the interview, you will see that they come back a lot to the main thing, which is AMR is a global thing. We are always focused on big numbers and trying to make average and median and finding statistics within things. And But to write a compelling story, you need to focus on personal stories. And they talk about different angles that these personal stories can be highlighted. And it's just very, very nice interview. It's a 45-minute interview that I recommend all of you to go and listen after you listen to our episode. And of course, you can find the link to that video on the show notes. And I think we have one more yes. news, an article from a UIC student, right? Yeah, exactly. This was like very, very last minute, but I'm super happy that our student, Vemisola Alward-Brown, has published her second article. We did cover her first article very in-depth on the news section of episode 19. And this article, it's closely related to the first article. It follows up and it builds on the same data set that she used for this first article. And it's been published on the International Journal of Infectious Diseases just recently on May 28. It was a open access already available online. And the title is Determinants of Trends in Reported Antibiotic Use Among Sick Children Under 5 Years of Age Across Low-Income and Middle-Income Countries in 2007 to 2017, a Systematic Analysis of User Characteristics Based on 132 National Surveys from 43 Countries. As you can imagine, this is a very big data set. And what they did on the first article, if you are interested, you can go check out that podcast episode, episode 19. They look into if there had been an increase in the consumption or the use of antibiotics in these countries over that time period, 2005 to 2017. And what they found is that, yes, there is an increase. But there was no more looking to what are the characteristics of this increase? Is this increase equal in all regions? Is, it, is this increase equal or different depending of the parents' education, the income capabilities of the region, etc.? So this article is now looking at those determinants. Can we find trends? Can we find regions or settings that are telling us that more antibiotics are being used and of course you can access it's also open access you can read the whole story you can read the whole article and the results but what comes out is that the trends are most prominent in low-income countries and southeast asia and also among groups that are underserved by formal health services so also low income and low education settings are the places where these trends are seen more prominently very happy for her. That is her second publication. There is going to be coming, I think, quite a lot of publications from UEC because the majority of the students are to be defended next year between May and June. So it's going to be a super busy autumn in terms of the PhD defenses at the center. But it's really nice to see all these articles coming up and these researchers becoming, the scientists they are becoming is very, very cool. And I'm very happy for them. Yeah, that was a lot. Yeah, but I hope that everybody found something there that they found interesting. <laughs> exactly. I think we had a lot of different things, but kind of interconnected in a way, which yeah, is always nice. There's a little bit of a red line through most mm -hmm. things there. 
But with that, I think we should say goodbye and mm -hmm. thank you for this month and see you next month. Yes, because remember, no hiatus this summertime for us here in the Northern Hemisphere. We will continue with one episode a month uh, until Christmas at least. Thank you so much, everyone, and hope to have you on the next one. Bye. Bye. For more information about the Uppsala Antibiotic Center, please visit our website. You can find a link in the episode notes. You can also follow us on Twitter. Our handle is UAC underscore UU. This episode was brought to you by the AMR Studios, composed by Eva Garmendia, Jenny Jackman, and Po Chen Tang. And a big thank you to Henrik Nis for letting us use his song, Sound the Alarm.